Hello, this is Akiva Weisinger with the Misfit Torah podcast, uh, the podcast where we talk about rabbinic figures and who the heck they are. Uh, today, uh, I want to start with a big question like I normally do. What is modernity? We talk a lot about modern. The word modern comes up, modern orthodox, modern Judaism, the modern period, uh, modern history. What is modernity? When we talk about modernity and modern things, what are we talking about? Um, so I'm going to attempt an answer here, even though I'm not an expert as much as I'm a guy who reads a lot. And I will admit uh, some of this answer is you know, built around the subject that I want to get to. Uh, I'm a little bit drawing the target around the arrow, but I think it will yield some valuable insights nonetheless. So here's my best attempt at what, a, what modernity is. Um, we generally will say that the modern period starts around the 1500s. When you're talking about modern Jewish history, you talk about 1492, uh, the Spanish expulsion, but uh, which is going to come into play later. But we generally talk about the 1500s, 1600s as the beginning of modernity. And around that time, a bunch of people in a lot of different disciplines uh, decide to ask, uh, hey, uh, why do we think the things that we think? Uh, we've been discussing the same thing for like a thousand years, using the same terms, using the same ideas, and all assuming the same things. Are we sure that we're right? Uh, and then they decided, okay, let's wipe the slate clean, look at the evidence, look at the data, uh, and see if we're right. And a lot of times things were not right, and they revised. Uh, two famous examples. Um, the first one, just to give an example of what it means to wipe the slate clean, a lot of you know Descartes. He's uh, uh, a guy who said, I think, therefore I am. Uh, a lot of people don't know the exact context in which that takes place. Descartes is, you know, uh, a philosopher, and he's like, you know, a lot of philosophy is debating the, all these terms. What happens if I just start assuming I don't know anything? Uh, and he starts saying, like, how do I know I exist? Uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of fun involving like a evil demon who may be uh, deceiving him into his existence or not. And he ends up saying the fact that I think uh, therefore proves that I exist. Um, it might be better translated as I think therefore I exist. Uh, this is an example of somebody wiping the slate clean. Uh, a more illustrative example to what modernity does or what modern thinking does is Copernicus. Copernicus is the guy, not Galileo, Copernicus, a uh, Polish guy. Uh, Polish have like this and Chopin and then like, you know, years of anti-Semitism. Uh, but they have Copernicus. Uh, and Copernicus, Copernicus is the guy who says maybe the Earth goes around the sun. Uh, and not the other way around. Uh, and this wasn't just him coming up with a new idea. This was him. There's a lot of, you know, over the centuries, there have been a lot of things that came up that didn't quite make sense. And everybody assumed that the sun uh, goes around the earth. And in order to answer as to why this, you know, heavenly body is doing this, uh, they said, OK, so it does a loop de loop in the sky over there. Uh, and that's how we explain how this thing exists. Uh, assuming that the uh, sun goes around the earth. Copernicus is like, maybe the earth goes around the sun, and instead of making loop-de-loops in the sky, everything is just circling the sun. And people were like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. There's like this idea that like the Catholic Church uh, sort of condemned Copernicus um, and you know got him in trouble. That didn't actually happen. They were actually pretty cool with Copernicus. It's Galileo they had a problem with, and that more had to do with Galileo's personality than Copernicus. But my point is, and I'm going off on a lot of tangents here that aren't related to my main topic, um, Modernity thought things up from the ground up using the data that had existed before. The example that I like to give my students uh, is, you know, if I drop a pencil onto the ground, um, I don't know that that's gravity that's working. I can interpret that a bunch of different ways. If I'm Aristotle, I interpret that as the ground wants to grab what originally belonged to it. And the pencil's made out of wood and the wood comes from the ground. Um, it takes, you know, Newton or somebody like that to say, oh, this is actually gravity. And that answers a bunch of other problems that come up. So this is not this is looking modernity is building from the ground up, but taking all that data that has been accumulated over the years and looking at it with fresh eyes. This is uh, from Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is a very boring book, but a very important one, um, where he talks about how 
you know, scientific revolutions or, you know, uh, ideas get, uh, you know, uh, get come up with. Um, and it's not like rejecting everything. It's, you know, building on new information. Um, so as a result of, you know, thinking things from the ground up, these modern thinkers thinking things from the ground up and thinking, uh, you know, taking all the received interpretations of this, of the data, and then, you know, saying, actually, it makes more sense if I interpret it that way, um, that's going to result in them rejecting old forms of authority, because those old forms of authority are invested in the old interpretations of things. Um, so that's going to mean a collapse of, you know, religious authority, for one. And this is especially true, considering that, like, once you come up with science and technology, as a result of this stuff that you thought of from the ground up, uh, you know, technology is going to do a better job of responding, of, you know, doing things a lot of the times in religion. And, you know, religion doesn't always protect people from all the things that it's going to promise it protects from. So, you know, modernity is going to, you know, poke a hole in that, you know, religious, uh, you know, to use Peter Berger's term, sacred canopy of like, everything makes sense according to this religion. And then, you know, modernity is going to start poking holes in that. Also, you know, political authority, um, you know, kings were, you know, assumed to have divine right and had uh, had a right to rule the way that they did and had a right to rule, uh, had a right to pass down the rule to their sons. And, you know, mo modernity or modern thinkers start asking the questions of, but why? Why do we do it that way? It doesn't seem to make sense. And that's eventually going to lead to democracy, uh, which, you know, has worked out for us so well. Um and, you know, as a result of, you know, rejection of old forms of authority, uh, there's going to be uh, emphasis on the individual and independence. That's my best sum up of what modernity is. Um, you know, I could accept other interpretations of it. Um, you know, I looked at the Wikipedia article for what modernity is, and it really depends on the topic. Uh, there's a lot of different definitions of modernity, uh, but... This will lead into what I want to talk about, which is uh, a Barbanel or a Bravanel. Uh, correct pronunciation is actually probably a Bravanel, uh, but I grew up saying a Barbanel, and I'm going to lapse into that uh, accidentally uh, a lot. So I'm going to try to say a Bravanel, and you guys can count how many times I actually lapse into a Barbanel. Um, my point is, a Barbanel is the first modern biblical commentator. He's the first uh, biblical commentator who we can comfortably call modern. Uh, and this will be an introduction to the modern biblical commentators. Okay, so I want to deal with why that is. But first, I want to talk about his life because his life is genuinely really fascinating. One of the more fascinating, you know, he's no Ibn Ezra, but he's one of the more genuinely fascinating figures in the rabbinic canon. Um he also bears, his life bears a little bit of an uncanny resemblance to Alexander Hamilton, uh, and you'll see why. So for all those Hamilton fans, this is me appealing to the youth. Um, a Barbanel, a Bravanel, there we go, uh, has a little bit of a uncanny resemblance to Alexander Hamilton, and I'll try to explain why. Okay, so uh, a Bravanel is born to a prestigious, well-off family, which is really the main difference between him and Alexander Hamilton. Um, he's born in 1437 in Lisbon, Portugal. His name is, his last name is Abravanel. His first name is Yitzchak Abravanel, but uh, we're going to probably call him Abravanel uh, for most of it, unless we're talking about like his relatives also, in which case we're going to say like Don Yitzchak, which was his title and his name. Uh, his father was treasurer for King Alfonso V, and Abravanel grows up, in his own words, in the palaces of kings. Uh, his grandfather, Don Shmuel, had been, like Abravanel would later become, a powerful, wealthy leader and defender of Jewry. Uh, but then he converted to Christianity, willingly. Uh, which tells you, A, a little bit about the atmosphere of the period, that it was a... Um, you know, it was a period in which people felt, uh, in which people were, uh, Jews were powerful enough to, you know, ha and comfortable enough to have powerful and comfortable positions in society, but also a society in which they would be better off if they converted to Christianity. Uh, and, you know, the fact that it was, seems to have been mostly for social reasons, not that he was convinced by Christianity, it just, it worked out better for his career, it tells you, B, 
Yichus isn't everything. <laughs> you know, I don't think that a Barbanel, a Bravanel, would get, uh, you know, a uh, a match in you know today's Haredi society to be like, oh, his grandfather converted to Christianity. Uh, let's, you know, not deal with him. Okay. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, Yitzchak took over uh, his after his father's death as treasurer. Okay, Hamilton similarity number one. Abravanel's really good at money. He's really good at being a treasurer. Okay, um, he's very good at his job. Uh, he's also a leader in the Jewish community and generally a badass. Uh, he leads rescue missions for North African Jews sold into slavery, despite not speaking the language at all. Um, however, uh, you know, Alfonso's successor, after King Alfonso, the, the king who, you know, uh, Abravanel's father worked for and the king that he's working for, uh, his successor, King John, uh, gets very nervous about noblemen, uh, you know, the uh, people who are, uh, you know what noblemen are, okay, uh, and he executes 80 of them, and as so often happens in history, Jews are caught in the middle of this power struggle because they're associated a little bit with, uh, you know, a little bit with the nobility, uh, and, uh, you know, now they're assumed to be, like, in cahoots with them, okay? Uh, at this point, Abravanel is framed for treason, actually, and he flees to Spain with nothing uh, but the shirt on his back before he can be put to death, okay? This time, he's pretty bummed out. But what happens next is actually pretty nuts, okay? Abravanel's 1483 to 1484 is one of the craziest 12 months in Jewish history uh, to happen to one indi individual. First, Abravanel is... Uh, Abravanel. I actually kind of split the difference there. It was like Abarvan, uh, Abarvanel. Okay. Abravanel is asked to give what seems to have been a Tanakh shir uh, at the local shul. Uh, and he decides, you know, I've got some free time while I'm preparing this this class, uh, let me write a commentary on Avim Rajon, and let me write a commentary on the early prophets. Uh, here's how long that takes him. Commentary on Sefer Yoshua, uh, Book of Joshua. Uh, he begins it October 11th, 1483, uh, and finishes it October 26th, 1483. That takes 15 days. Uh, he begins his commentary on Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, uh, he starts that after a five-day break on October 31st. He finishes it November 25th, a little less than a month. Uh, but those are like short books. Those are pretty easy books to write a commentary on. Um, book of Shmuel, big, you know, meaty book. Uh, it's got two parts to it, a lot of stuff about David and like, you know, complicated stuff involving the monarchy and all these complicated characters. He begins it November 30th after a five-day break. Seems to take five-day breaks after he's uh, done with a commentary. He finishes it March 8th, 1484. Uh, it's a little, like, three months. Like, uh, okay. Something like... I'm having trouble counting here. Somebody correct me when I release this, okay? That is commentaries on three-slash-four books of Tanakh, like, depending on how you count. Uh, written in the span of like four and a half months. Uh, that's pretty impressive regardless of what his commentary is. Uh, I couldn't do that, and not a lot of people can do that. That's a lot of commentary to write within the span of four and a half months. But what's really impressive, he is not a concise and terse writer. He's actually one of the most thorough commentators out there. Um, you know, rivaled only by the Ramban, and he wrote more than the Ramban. Uh, you know, the Ramban, the fact that the Ramban wrote as much as he did is frankly a miracle. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Obarbanel writes more than the Ramban. He's the most thorough, uh, and wordy commentaries out there. He really just writes essays, not comments, whereas we're going to see. Uh, let me quote from a, uh, article that I saw. Um, you know, Barbanel's commentaries, uh, quote, seen at times to actually bulge out, to be overweighted with information. Not that his many works are wordy or repetitious, but that he has laid plans for a large edifice and has built on a deep and broad foundation. So many aspects of Bible study entered into his comedy that it had to reach its colossal size. Like, he's not somebody who repeats words for the sake of repeating words. He's just dealing with so much information. And as we'll see when we discuss his commentary, uh, he's just has a lot to offer, 
Uh, and this is not somebody writing a biblical commentary in four and a half months and like it's just, you know, this word means this. He's writing entire essays, entire, you know, treatises on, you know, political power and stuff like that. We're going to see when we get into the commentary, okay? Um, according to his biographer, uh, it's 400,000 words in four and a half months. Okay, how much is 400,000 words? Okay, and the longest Harry Potter book is 257,000 words. Uh, the entire Lord of the Rings is around 455,000 words. Uh, and Lord of the Rings took 12 years. Abarbanel wrote his commentary in four and a half months. Okay, the Abarbanel's uh, 1483 to 1484 ranks up there with Bob Dylan's 1965 as the most insane short burst of creativity in history, if you ask me. Um, but at this point, we just took a break to discuss how insanely prolific of a writer he is. That's not the only thing that he's doing, which makes this more impressive. Um, after being treasurer for the Royal Court of Portugal uh, before, okay, he leaves with the clothes on his back. This is where he is now. He's got nothing now. Okay, March, March 1484, pretty much right after he finishes all those commentaries, he sent a messenger. Uh, he's been granted an audience with King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, okay, the king and queen of Spain. They're interested in hiring him to be part of the treasury staff. They've got a war with the Moors going on, the, uh, the Spanish Muslims, and finances are a little difficult. They need somebody who's an expert to, to help them out. Would he be interested? Uh, he is. And by all accounts, he does a great job. And by 1491, he is the queen's personal financial advisor, okay? Let's unpack how crazy this is, okay? He arrived in Spain penniless with the clothes on his back a year ago, you know, tarred by a scandal, uh, a treason scandal. And like a year later, he's part of the royal court. And within just a short amount of time, historically, he's the queen's personal financial advisor. We really don't know how he managed to get that meeting that, you know, launched him to this top. Did he have a contact? Did word of his reputation get out? We really do not know how he even got the meeting. Never mind how quickly he progressed up the ranks. He sure didn't throw away his shot. Okay? Immigrants to get the job done, etc., etc. Hamilton similarity number three. Okay? Okay. Also, what year is it? It's 1484. Who's the king and queen? Ferdinand and Isabella. What's about to happen in eight years? The Spanish Inquisition. Abarbanel was so impressive, so talented the two of the most anti-Semitic people in history, at almost the peak of their anti-Semitism, decided to hire this newly arrived penniless immigrant who now spent his time writing Tanakh commentaries. Okay? And really quickly, this is a mere eight years before the Inquisition. Okay? Incidentally, the book that I read on Abarbanel has this long tangent basically asking, how could Abarbanel be, have been so stupid to take this job with these people? With these people? Couldn't he see what was ha coming? And his answer is basically Jews in, who lives in the diaspora are blind to the dangers lurking around the corner, and Abarbanel should have started Zionism instead. Um, the author of this book is Benzion Netanyahu, and it will not shock you to find out who his son is. Anyway... Let's fast forward to 1492, okay? Jews are expelled from Spain. You know, the, the order for ex expel, uh, expellation? No, that's not the word, okay? Bear with me. Uh, is announced. Abravanel, again, is the most powerful Jew in Spain and one of the most powerful people in the country. Uh, and he's doing everything he can to prevent this, okay? Remember, he is Queen Isabella's personal financer. He appeals personally to Isabella and let me just read to you what happens next, because it's very dramatic. This is from Netanyahu's book. Okay. Quote, he now spoke to the queen, the haughty fanatic and often, often ferocious Isabella, not like her financial agent, not even like a cautious diplomatic courtier. Courtier. I pronounce things wrong sometimes. Quote, he spoke to her like a scion of the house of David and as a representative of an unconquered and unconquerable people. He spoke to her, moreover, like a prophet of old, in daring, castigating, and threatening language. If Isabella thought that by measures like expulsion, the Jews could be brought to surrender or to extinction, she was greatly mistaken. He pointed out to her the eternity of the Jewish people, that they had outlived all who had attempted to destroy them, that it was beyond human capacity to destroy the Jewish people, and that those who tried to do so only invited upon themselves divine punishment and disaster. 
Isabella, who had a mystic vein in her soul, could understand such an argument, but her reaction must have been along the same lines. She too invoked the name of God, but of course to prove the very opposite of Bravanel's conclusions. Do you believe, she said to the Jewish representatives, that this comes upon you from us? The Lord hath put this thing into the heart of the king. Okay. Queen Isabella basically, you know, he, he appeals and says, you know, no matter what you're going to do, you're not going to get us to uh, accept Christianity. Why are you doing this? And Isabella basically says, well, you know, this is what God wants. His attempts to save Spanish Jewry fail. Think of how hard that must have been for him personally, okay? He amassed all this power and influence. Uh, he And besides that, you know, he must have been seen as almost superhuman by the Spanish Jewish community. Like, they fully believed that, you know, we're going to be okay because we have a Brabanel. He's going to save us. He's personal financer to the queen. Uh, and he fails. And everybody has to leave, okay? Except one person. The king and queen want to keep a Bravanel around, okay? And this is famous. Like, maybe you heard once they offered a Bravanel a vast sum of money to stay on as treasurer, and he turned them down because of loyalty to his people. That's impressive enough, as it is. Uh, it's actually crazier than that. Uh, there were three Jews in the royal court, two plus a Bravanel. They were all pressured to conver convert, and two of them, the ones who were not a Bravanel, converted. But they really wanted to keep a Bravanel. Remember, he's very good at his job. Uh, so they hatched a plan to kidnap his one-year-old grandson and convert him, which, it was hoped, would convince a Bravanel to convert and stay. I don't know how that would work either, but that was the plan. Uh, fortunately, they caught wind of the plan and sent the grandson ahead, uh, and he leaves the country. He settles in Italy, and the last years of his life are basically spent doing the following. He gets to a new place. He's immediately hired by a king or prince as financial advisor. He leaves the Jewish community. He writes a bunch of stuff. Uh, he leaves when tides turn against the Jews. They often do. Uh, and then he repeats the process. This happens three times, if I counted right. Uh, again, you know, the same thing that, you know, Hamilton does in uh, history, where he comes to a new place and then he works his way up the ranks and becomes like one of the most powerful financial people in that country, uh, you know, working his way up from nothing. Bravanel does that four times in four different places. Uh, he dies in Venice in 1508. OK, so he lived from. Let me check again. I'm terrible with dates, okay? He lives from 1437 to 1508, born in Portugal, dies in Venice, in 15, uh, uh, dies in Venice, okay? So let's talk about his commentary, okay? Again, fascinating life, fascinating person. Let's talk about, about what a Bravanel brings to the table as a commentator. Uh, in first of all, an extremely unique set of life experiences, okay? He's been an advisor to kings and queens. Uh, he's lived in you know, vastly different places. He's been in high pressure situations. Uh, also, he has a broad education. Remember, he's raised as an Iberian nobleman. He had a good education and, you know, science and philosophy, uh, you know, all the stuff that you could have an education with at this point in history, he has that education. Um, you know, as somebody who was a leader, he has a real passion and sense of responsibility for Am Yisrael. And especially in his later writings, after the expulsion from Spain, you see that weighing on him. Um, is he a philosophy guy? Kind of. Uh, he's not a capital R rationalist. He's not a, Ram, uh, a Rambam stan, as it were. Uh, that's another show, really. Uh, you know, I want to deal with the, Ram, uh, the uh, Barbanel's philosophy in a different show. Um, but just know that he uses philosophy. Uh, he's, you know, conversant in it. Uh, but he's not really a rationalist. He's not really somebody who will reject any mystical beliefs. Um, he's also not really a grammar guy. Uh, he says in his commentary, he left it out for the sake of brevity. Uh, he's not usually not concerned about brevity. Um, I kind of suspect he found it boring. Uh, but, you know, that's not my place to say. It could be that, like, you know, this is going to be really long if I include all the grammar stuff. Uh, you know, I might as well shorten it, okay? Uh, he deals with contemporary issues. 
uh, as you know, somebody who was a leader of Kali Yisrael, uh, you know, did. He dealt with, you know, the fact of conversos, people who had converted to Christianity in Spain. He deals with the expulsion. He deals with, you know, contemporary issues. Uh, he's also, again, very well-read. Remember, Iberian, no, Iberian nobleman education. He knows more or less everything that there is to know at this point in history. Uh, he knows prior commentaries cold, encyclopedic knowledge of prior commentaries, science, philosophy, history. This is what he brings to the table. Okay. So now what's the personality of his commentary? I like to talk about like, not just, you know, what they do, but the personality. Okay. Um, he's a broad structural thinker with emphasis on fundamentals. Okay. Uh, he's the type of person that starts each book of Tanakh, each book of uh, Tanakh's commentary with an intro which are really worth reading because they deal with fundamentals of Tanakh study, okay? His introduction to Yirmiyahu is going to deal with, like, you know, the text that we have versus traditional reading, creative stuff. Uh, he has a real wacky chiddush on Yirmiyahu, which we're, uh, I don't want to get into right now, but he thinks that Yirmiyahu wasn't very good at grammar. Um, Shmuel, he deals with authorship of Sefer Shmuel because Sefer Shmuel says that Shmuel dies, uh, like, halfway through it. So, like, who wrote it? And in that you know, essay is going to deal with authorship of like all the books of Tanakh. Uh, say for Yoshua, he's going to deal with the arrangement of books in, in the Neviim and Ketuvim. Uh, what's the difference between the two? That's a trickier question than you might think. You might think that, oh, Neviim are like, you know, stories and Ketuvim are, you know, you know, written works. And, but the thing is like half of Neviim is, you know, uh, Neviim, you know, writing long poems about how B'nai Israel have screwed up. Uh, and Ketuvim have their stories as well. Think Megillus Esther. So it's a trickier question than you might think. Uh, Abravanel is one of the, uh, is a commentator who's going to address that. Okay. Because he's such a structured thinker, it's not, his commentary is not a running commentary. It's more essays like Relbag, a little bit like Ramban. But the essays are done in a very unique way. Okay. Opening section of each, you know, parak or, uh, opening, opening, he opens each section, Perak, I'm not sure, you know, story, whatever, He with a whole lot of questions. He's just going to start off with listing as many questions as he can, as much as 40 in one go. Okay, there's an old joke, and this is like, this joke is like 60% of why I'm doing this episode, so that people understand this joke and understand how funny it is. Um, guy comes to the rabbi and says, you know, I don't think I can be Jewish anymore. Uh, Rabbi says, why? He says, well, I just, I just have too many questions. There's so many questions that I, I have, and I don't think anybody's going to be able to answer them. Uh, and the Rabbi's very concerned. Rabbi's like, do you, do you learn regularly? Do you have a learning schedule? He's like, well, you know, I'm a busy man, and I don't really have time for so much learning. But uh, I've started learning... Uh, you know, a Brapanel on, on Tanakh. Uh, and the rabbi goes, oh, well, how's that going? He's like, well, he's, I said, I'm a busy man, so uh, I don't have time to learn that much. Uh, but I open it up on Shabbos, and I start reading, and, you know, I usually fall asleep before I get to the, uh, before I get, uh, I get very far in it. Joke is that, like, if you don't get very far in a Brapanel, you're just going to see his questions. Uh, there's probably like a larger point to make about like, well, you know, not sticking around to see the answers to the questions, uh, whatever. I don't care right now. I'm just talking about his commentary. Okay. Um, so he's going to start off with as many questions as he can. And those questions are actually really worth reading because not only, you know, will you understand the commentary better, but you'll actually start to understand how a commentator thinks, uh, much better. You'll start to see what kind of questions you can ask, what kind of questions, uh, what kind of things you should be looking for. Okay, he's then going to give his interpretation of the pursuit. Uh and then at the end he's going to sum up uh, how his explanation answers all the questions. Okay, teachers in my audience will recognize this is basically what a lesson is supposed to be like. You pose a question at the beginning, uh, you do the work, and then by the end, you're able to answer the questions. This is not a, uh, you know, accident. Abrabanel is, Abrabanel is an exceptional educator. Uh, he's clear. He is very understandable. He says explicitly, I am not going to jerk you around like some of the other commentators. <clears throat> Ibn Ezra. Um, 
Okay, I love Ibn Ezra, but that's what he does. Okay, he's very structured. He's very like, this is what we're going to do right now, and we're going to, you know, then do this. Okay, he's one of the uh, Rabbi Chaim Angel in a um, in an article uh, about Abarbanel says he's one of the only commentators who doesn't need a super commentary. He doesn't he doesn't need a commentary to tell you what he's saying. Uh, he's you know very clear. You can read him straight. Okay, if you're preparing a lesson. Teachers, non-teachers, people are just asked to give something in shul, okay? If you're preparing a lesson on a given t section of Tanakh, you really could do worse than just read the Abarbanel straight uh, and then use that as a guide for pre preparing your lesson, okay? More importantly, to call back to our opening, okay, the idea that he, you know, the idea of modernity as something that builds up a new paradigm from the, from, uh, the ground up, using the same data as been used before. His unique style is uh, means that he'll he's what I'll call a paradigm builder, okay? He wants to provide a reading of the text that answers all the questions and accounts for all the data, okay? He wants to see an answer that, like, will answer all of his questions. He's willing to think through his understanding of a story from the ground up and revise his understanding based on all the data, you know? Uh, this answer is, you know, given, but like, it doesn't answer all the questions. It, what about this question? What about this question? What about this question? I want an answer that uh, answers all the questions. So while he's generally a shot-based commentator, at least programmatically, he's not somebody who's like, I need to bring in other information. Uh, I need to provide Chazal's reading in order for you to understand this. Uh, it's broader shot, not just the words on the page. Okay, he's much more inter interested in answering his broad questions than explaining what the text says, and he's more making sense of the story than reading it. I'll you know I'll explain that, what that means. He me it means that you know if something says straight says something straightforward in the text, but uh, you know it doesn't fit with something else that's said later, he's the kind of person that's going to revise the understanding of the text based on like a larger question. Okay, um, you know. What are things that he'll revise based on? He's, you know, literary devices, structure of Tanakh. Why is this here? Why is this after this? Uh, psychological readings of characters. Why did they do this? What were they thinking as they did this? He'll go against like the simple reading of the story if there's broader explanations that satisfy his questions. An example, uh, you know, the Mamariva of a story, the story where Moshe hits the rock. And because of him hitting the rock, uh, he's not allowed to enter B'nai Israel. I taught this to my students this year. Okay. Uh, the plain meaning of the text says, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to enter Eretz Yisrael because you didn't sanctify my name. So Abravanel has this whole long thing where he ends up rejecting that, you know, plain meaning of the text. It can't be just that, you know, you didn't sanctify my name. That does not fit the punishment here. Uh, instead, he ends up saying it was a punishment for prior sins, but Hashem chose to announce it now so as to not make him, you know, look bad. There was there needed to be something like very public that Hashem could put this on so that, you know, it wouldn't make Moshe look bad elsewhere. Um, that's an example of like a Barbanel using, you know, broader context instead of, you know, reading just the, the plain meaning of the text. But it is a form of shot because he's not just, you know, saying that, you know, Chazal said this and therefore I need to, you know, say that, okay? His willingness to think through a story from the ground up means that despite the fact of his his knowledge of prior commentators and prior explanations is, you know, as I, the word that I used before was encyclopedic. He knows everything that happened, that all the commentators that happened before him. Uh, he's going to reject opinions that he finds insufficient, including Chazal, including, you know, the rabbis, okay? He's very independent, and he's uh, creative and original. I'll give you an example. Um, the plague of Tzfardea, okay? The, the second plague in the plagues of Egypt, okay? Uh, usually we translate that as frogs, right? There's frogs, frogs here, frogs there, frogs are jumping everywhere, even in Paro's underwear, you know, that whole thing, right? Um, he'll actually translates Fridea as crocodiles. Uh, why? Because a plague, a maka, needs to imply lethality. I'm not probably not pronouncing that correctly. It needs to be lethal. It needs to actually be able to kill people in his definition of what a maka is, what a plague is. Uh, and frogs are not lethal. They're annoying, but they're not lethal. Again, here you see the questions and the structure 
uh, he has a question on like this word has to mean this and the structure of the 10 plagues are, you know, all things that are lethal. Uh, that dictates a meaning more than like the actual words on the page. Uh, and he's going to reject everyone else who says that it means frogs if it doesn't make sense according to what the data shows him there. According to, and you know, he's using a larger set of data than most other commentators. Okay. This is occasionally controversial. Um, you know, David and Bacheva, the story of David and Bacheva. Okay. Uh, David, uh, you know, is at home when the nation is at war. He sees a, he sees a woman on the roof, uh, you know, uh, whole lyric from Hollywood that is, uh, eluding me right now. Um, and you know, that whole story where, you know, has a baby with Bacheva, Bacheva pregnant. He tries to kill off, uh, Bacheva's husband and, you know, Chazal, the rabbis will come up with an explanation as why David didn't actually sin. Uh, you know, she had divorced him as a result of him going out to war. So technically it was okay. Um, you know, Abarbanel is going to look at it and go, guys, he sinned. It's right there in the psukim. Okay. The, the prophet, uh, Nathan Anavi says to him, like, David, you sinned. Uh, you need to repent. Abarbanel is going to reject, you know, accumulated authority. Uh, of, as to, you know, how to understand the sin of David Bathsheba based on the data that's in front of him. The data in front of him says, hey, he sinned. You know, why are we going to... The, he actually, like, in the way that he puts it, I, I don't have the words on me right now, but he's actually kind of offended at the idea that you would, like, you know, absolve somebody of power, of uh, absolve somebody of power of a, an abuse of power. Uh, you know, and there will be people who still yell at you for thinking that David did... A, did a sin because the Gemara is like very unequivocal, at least in one place. In other places, it's pretty equivocal. Um, you know, David never sinned. The woman, uh, you know, the woman was divorced, and uh, then you know the the person who refused to go back to his wife was more uh, was a re rebel against the king. But you know, Barbanel is like, yeah, it says that he sinned. What are you guys talking about? Okay, uh, and it's simple. It's not you know he rejects Chazal, so to speak. He's not rejecting all the authority. He's not, you know, non-orthodox. The explanation that David sinned answers more questions than the explanation that he didn't. If you say that David didn't sin, you have a whole list of questions that you have to ask on the text. And it makes much more sense just reading the story that he, you know, uh, that he sinned. Okay. Uh, another thing about Bravanel, and I mentioned this before, and I want to give you an example. Okay. Uh, some of the data that he uses to come up with his explanations is his extremely unique life experience. Okay. Um, when B'nai Israel want in uh, Sefer Shmuel, okay, Shmuel, uh, the B'nai Israel are telling Shmuel that we want to appoint a king. And Shmuel's like, you know, a king is going to have to do this, is going to, you know, be able to conscript you into the army, take your sons and daughters as slaves and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so, most people are just going to say, you know, there is a mitzvah to appoint a king, and a king is the uh, Tanakh's preferred uh, preferred method of rulership, uh, which I think is pshat, but, you know, we're going to see a Bravanel uh, does not agree with me. Uh, and, you know, he's saying that what the consequences are going to be, but he's not saying that it's a bad thing. And Bravanel is going to go, no, you know, you're commanded, B'nai Israel are commanded to appoint a king, like, if they want to appoint a king, you're going to have to appoint a king, and this is, this is what they're going to have to do, but, like, kings suck. Guys, I would know. Kings suck. The monarchy sucks, okay? Let me read for you, okay? Um, this is from a translation of a Barbanel in the Torah, which I find uh, pretty amusing, uh, because it's very clear that the guy who translated it started out wanting to translate all of a Barbanel, and he got to the first four, let me see, first six chapters of Parshas Beratius, uh, which ended up taking 300 pages, and then he was like, no, screw this. Uh, no, this is, and it's also like a lot of medieval philosophy and stuff like that, and a lot of stuff that's uh, hard to get through. And whoever wrote this was like, no, screw this. For the rest of this, I'm just going to, you know, take the most important Bravanels and, you know, translate them. Uh, I don't have my entire life to do this. Okay. It, you know, I'm not complaining. I have a translation here of, uh, you know, a Bravanel on Kings. Okay. Let's, uh, let me get back to this. Okay. Quote, 
More convincing, however, than any theoretical arguments is our factual experience. We need only cast a glance at countries governed by kings. There is no limit to their excesses and to the suffering they inflict upon their subjects, each occupant of the throne acting as he pleases, with disastrous consequences. Not so the countries administered by duly elected governors, officiating for a limited period, whose power is restricted and whose king is none but God. As all can see, these leaders govern their people justly and effectively during both peace and war. The Republican system's superiority over that of the monarchy stands out in the annals of the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, terrible and exceedingly strong. He's quoting a passage from uh, Sefer Daniel, uh, the Roman Empire. As long as a considerable number of trustworthy consuls functioning on a temporary basis govern the empire, its borders encompass the whole world and no nation could stand in its way. Once under the rule of Caesar, however, the Roman, the Roman Empire began to disintegrate. To this day, the Republic of Venice is greatly admired throughout the world, as is that of Florence. There are numerous other countries, large or small, prefer not to be governed by a king. In these republics, administered by duly elective councillors, officiating during a set period, law and order is effectively maintained and crime is not tolerated. The, judici the judiciously executed policies of these rulers have even enabled them to expand these republics beyond their own borders. Okay. So a lot of interesting things over here. He says, you know, from personal experience, again, he was kicked out by the monarchs of Spain. He had close personal contact with them. Uh, he's like, you know, kings and queens do a lot that's bad. And, you know, I have this, you know, idea for a better system uh, that how about like people directly elect uh, people to represent them and those people are accountable to the people. He also interestingly brings in like Roman history. He's like the Roman Republic was fine until they started, you know, appointing emperors, again, showing you the breadth of his knowledge, okay? Again, this is a guy writing in, like, 1500? No, uh, like, before that, 1400s, because this is on, uh, okay, this is, this is on, you know, Sefer Shmuel. Is this on Sefer Shmuel? I forget. Uh, I should really know this beforehand, okay? Uh, yeah, so this is actually in Sefer Devarim, so it's written later, but he's going to, you know, his understanding of Sefer Shmuel is, is in this story, okay? So he's writing a little bit later, um, 1500s, okay? And he's pretty much, you know, supporting direct democracy. Uh, in fact, there is actually a direct line of influence from Abravanel to the American Revolution, okay? Christian Hebraists, uh, Christians, uh, scholars who are interested in reading Hebrew and, you know, uh, reading the Hebrew Bible in its original language. So they find this commentary in Abravanel, and they're like, oh, this is cool. Uh, this relates to the Enlightenment project that we're doing right now. Uh, and the Abravanel's interpretation of the request for monarchy in Sefer Shmuel is actually, you know, quoted, uh, you know, Thomas Paine didn't know it was from Abravanel. It's quoted in Thomas Paine's Common Sense. He didn't know it was from Abravanel, but it's lifted from people who quoted it from Abravanel. There's a direct line of influence between Abravanel and the American Revolution, uh, because Thomas Paine's common sense is generally credited with giving the intellectual foundation for the American Revolution. Okay, so not only will he reject traditional authority in terms of rabbinical, in terms of his biblical interpretation, not only will he, you know, say, you know, I know that you have the authority here in terms of, you know, religious authority, but like, come on. It doesn't say that in the text. And like I asked all these questions and it doesn't answer as many questions as I would have liked it to. His commentary also contains the seeds of the revolt against traditional norms, uh, forms of authority that took place in modernity. OK, so before we get to like the sum up, uh, let's sum up some features of uh, Robinell's commentary. OK, um, let's look at, you know, our, uh, you know, questions are like uh, scales of biblical commentary and see where he lies on them. OK. Textual independence versus traditional text. The degree to which a given commentator sees a biblical text as an independent work and one that can only be understood in the context of the oral tradition. Pretty textual independent. Okay. Literal meaning versus symbolic meaning. The degree to which a given commentator sees a text as being meant to be understood on a literal level versus being understood as representing something beyond the text, such as Kabbalistic or philosophical ideas, or as a response to current events or political issues. Okay, uh, it's, it's a very broad category, but Abravanel is pretty much in the middle. He's much more inclined, uh, you know, personally towards a literal meaning, but 
he's going to understand things in terms of like current events and political ideas because that's just what his background is and that's just what he's trying to do with his commentary sometimes. Uh, rational reinterpretation versus unmediated text. The degree to which a given commentator is willing to interpret reinterpret text to better align with rational principles as opposed to leaving the problematic parts unchanged. I didn't research this that much, but I don't remember him doing that so often. Uh, linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism, the degree to which a given biblical commentator is inclined to see every word as worthy of interpretation versus allowing words to be understood in the context of natural speech, uh, pretty, you know, will interpret every word that he can. Uh, on the page versus by the book, the degree to which a given biblical commentator interpret what's in front of them in isolation versus in terms of the entirety of the of scripture, very much by the book, very much, you know, somebody who's going to take in the totality of, you know, all the data, including stuff that's not on this particular page, okay? When would I use a Bravanel? Uh, I want an interpretation that accounts for as many things as possible. I want a very thorough and structured interpretation of the story, uh, which I guess we all want sometimes. So, like, use a Bravanel. He's fun, okay? I want to understand what kind of textual problems I should be aware of reading, reading a given story. Like, just reading the questions that the Bravanel asks is worth it on its own, Okay? Uh, when would I, another thing, I want an interpretation of the story that is from a guy who understood politics and human character really well and had a really varied life experience. He's excellent when understanding character motivations. He's excellent when understanding political, uh, you know, motivations in stories. Uh, he has a life experience that like, because of the absence of power, uh, for most Jews throughout the centuries is like extremely, extremely rare. Uh, you know, not many Jews made it to the level that he did. Uh, throughout history. Um, so, you know, I like to end with a little speech, uh, you know, summing up what I think we can learn from this guy. You know, modernity gets a bad rap a lot in religious circles because, you know, it uh, rejected religious authority a lot of the time. It rejected, you know, if we can think things from the ground up and if we can think, you know, reject forms of authority that existed before, we can re reject religious authority. And therefore, in religious communities, you know, modernity gets a bad rap. You can't, you know, uh, hear like, you can hear like a ton of drushes that, uh, a ton of, you know, speeches that are like, modernity has caused, you know, raging against modernity. Um, you know, Abravanel is the first modern commentator. Uh, he rejects prior par paradigms and builds new ones. He rejects prior forms of authority and proposes new ones. Uh, he had a front row seat to the collapses of religious and traditional political authority, and he proposed solutions uh, to new problems that resembled what was come, uh, you know, what modernity evolved, namely like democracy and individual representation and uh, individuality. Um, I don't think you have to reject the idea of, you know, modernity. I don't think you have to always think that Judaism is just about obeying authority in order to fit into a religious community. Um, I think that one of the benefits of being in a religious community is that at the end of the day, authority doesn't come from people. It comes from God and it comes from the text. Uh, granted, interpretations of the text are, you know, sanctified through the generations uh, and, you know, through practice and uh, through practice by many people. And like, I'm not going to necessarily say that, like, it's a good thing if we all went back, you know, all went back to the, you know, Gemara uh, and, you know, rejected all of Roshonim and Achronim. But um, I think it's significant that, you know, uh, when religious people want to revolutionize, want to, you know, build revolutions, they don't say that we need to, you know, throw out everything. They start from like, let's go back to the text or let's go back to God, you know, looking at like the Hasidic movement. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wrote a paper uh, in high school about Kutzker Hasidus, which is something I plan to get to in this podcast, like way off in the future and compared it to uh, early punk rock in uh, how it saw itself as a return to as a return to the roots of the movement through return to simplicity. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is is that there are ways to reject, 
you know, there are ways to revolutionize. There are ways to uh, think things from the ground up that fit well within a religious context. And, you know, Abravanel was able to do that. Abravanel was able to revolutionize biblical commentary, was able to, you know, revolutionize how we looked at text, was able to, uh, you know, rethink a lot of the ideas that we just accepted uh, as, you know, what biblical commentary should look like. And I think that there is room in a religious tradition for these, you know, revolutionaries, for these modern revolutionaries, people who, you know, say, hey, um, I know that we've accumulated these ideas over time, and I know that we've come up with these solutions over time, but like, let's go back and rethink this, and let's go back and look at the, you know, the data that's in front of us. Maybe not everything that we're doing makes sense. Um, and uh, this is, you know, all a bit little, con all a little convoluted at the end here, but uh, I don't, I think that Abravanel shows what a religious revolutionary looks like. And I don't think that we should count that kind of personality out uh, in terms of, you know, who we include in, uh, in our community. Um, all right. So that's the episode. And uh, I hope to come out with another episode on a uh, shorter schedule than this one came out. This one was the first one that really required like original research, um, because this was the one of the first ones that, like, uh, I didn't really have a college class on, so uh, I had to do everything from scratch here. I guess that fits in with the theme, but hopefully, I haven't decided who the next episode is going to be on, but hopefully, uh, we'll have it to you sooner than this one appeared. All right. Uh... Hi, this is Akiva Weisinger, and uh, the guy who does this podcast and if you liked what you heard uh please consider uh subscribing to our patreon uh which would help us uh grow and uh give us money to invest in this podcast buying books buying uh, other supplies and uh it would you know uh help me continue to uh help me focus on this podcast more exclusively um so if you like what you heard uh, go to patreon.com, uh, Misfit Torah, and uh, sign up. You can sign up for like $5, and there's going to be stuff that will show up just for Patreon subscribers. Uh, and, uh, feel, you know, it'll help me out. All right, patreon.com slash Misfit Torah.